free to, if you need to stay awake, feel free to grab some more water to put these while I'm speaking. But in any case, uh, thank you very much, Zach and, and Emily, for, for the introduction for the program. So I'm speaking essentially as the Muslim guy, uh, talking about immigration, faith that moves. And, and I was discussing uh, uh, with Gabriel just before uh, how we should approach this. So I'm going to address this topic speaking as an immigrant, uh, speaking through the lens of being a Muslim immigrant, as well as uh, addressing what to do in, the, in terms of addressing the plight of immigrants. And the better term for the second would be refugees, right? When I'm speaking of an immigrant, I'm speaking of choice. Uh, uh, when I'm speaking of a refugee, I'm speaking of compulsion. So, and I think of those as two different things. <clears throat> but I'm coming, uh, uh, we came to the United States way back in the 1970s, which may be before many of your parents were born. But the, the point being that um, it was by choice. Now, speaking within the lens of Islam, uh, one of uh, the memes that we've been finding on Facebook as of late is that Moses was an immigrant, Jesus was an immigrant, and Muhammad was an immigrant. Uh, the prophet Muhammad himself, peace be upon him, is raised in this town of Mecca. He receives the call to, to call people to, to the one God when he's about 40 years old, and as a result of his, his efforts, the people of his town who've known him his whole life began to push back. First, they were pushing back by way of mockery, then they escalated as he continued to preach and continued to slowly gain followers. They escalated from mockery to character assassination, accusing him of being uh, possessed, accusing him of being a fraud, accusing him of plagiarizing. As he continued to preach, they escalated further by way of attacking his followers. He himself was part of the main tribe of, of uh, the Meccans, but his followers, many of them were part of weak tribes, so they would attack his followers uh, by way of torture. And still they persisted. And the prophet speaks to his companions who are getting tortured, saying to them, if this is too difficult for you, there's a just Christian king across the sea in Abyssinia uh, who does not do anyone wrong. You can go live there until I give the order. So this is the first immigration. And almost the entire population of Muslims get up and leave. He stays, and some companions of his stay with him. Uh, and there's different interpretations for why. Some wanted to protect him, and some just did not want to leave his side out of love for him. He continues to preach, and then the, the leaders of Mecca escalate even further, boycotting all of the Muslims as well as their families, meaning if you have a Muslim in your family, we're going to stop trade with you. We're going to stop social relations with you. And thus, if you can't trade, you're not going to have food. And this, there's different interpretations in history in terms of how long this, this boycott went on for. Some say six months, some say up to two years. But the boycott, is sent, uh, eventually, uh, the, the leaders of Mecca, they failed. They gave up. So they continue escalating. Now they reach the point where they decide, okay, they've tried everything against him, and there's nothing left except to execute him, to kill him. Now why did they hold off until what is now close to ten years to, to do this? Uh, because he's still one of their relatives. The entirety of the leadership of Mecca were his uncles. So they reached the point that he has become too much of a threat by way of preaching, preaching this one message, a threat to their beliefs, more than that, a threat to their social order, because the people who were embracing his message, as is often the case in this type of work, were the young people, were the women who were dispossessed in the society, as well as the slaves of the society. 
So the social order is getting shaken, which then means the economic benefits, the economic privileges of the elite were also under threat. So <clears throat> this is when Muhammad himself, in Islamic tradition, then receives instructions from the divine saying, it is time for you to leave. And there's a whole interesting story we can get into in the Q&A about the actual moment of, of, of the people of Mecca trying to, trying to kill him. But he leaves to a town up north, about 260 miles up north, which later is known as Medina. And in Medina, he now begins a community. So when he's in Mecca, think of him as the leader of a renegade group, a cult. In Medina, he now becomes a political leader. He has... Uh, the following from Abyssinia coming now to rejoin him, and he has many people in Medina who are welcoming him and asking him to be their leader. And over the course of the next few years, his conflicts with the people of Mecca do not end. They escalate a step further. Now he's out of our, our, our space, which makes him more dangerous. And they essentially lead to war with him. So this leads to a series of battles and such, and eventually, and again I'm giving you the, the abridged version of the story, eventually he conquers and he returns back to Mecca. So this is immigration phase or uh, number one. Muhammad sends his companions, Muhammad himself goes. Now, move from the time of the prophet beyond for the next few centuries. Most of Islamic history, especially in the formative period of Islamic thought, which is around the years 600 such to about 900, 300 years or so after the death of the Prophet Muhammad, these are the years where Islamic thought really begins to form, and most of this period, Muslims are living as minorities in other populations. So the core of the story begins in the Arabian Peninsula, but the capital itself of the Muslim world keeps moving. It moves to Kufa, which is in modern-day Iraq, Muslims were a minority population, uh, population there. It moves to Damascus, which is in modern-day Syria, and Muslims were a minority population there. The dominant populations in these regions at this time were Christians. And there are other groups, uh, other followers of other traditions, but majority there were Christians, and these were former Roman states. And the capital of the Muslim world keeps moving. But the point to, to, to think about is that in being minority populations, how would they get there? By way of immigration. Okay. There's conversion taking place, but the major efforts at conversion don't begin later until later in, in Muslim history. And so these different fields of, of Islam, the different, we call them sciences of Islam, Islamic law, Islamic purification, which we know more commonly as the way of the Sufis, uh, efforts towards justice, they are often speaking with the lens of someone being a minority population. There's definitely expansion of Muslim empires, but even then, you may have a Muslim empire where governors are still ruling over a different population that is the majority. So what does that mean? In these years, in these centuries, we start seeing the formation of what we today call the Sharia, Islamic law. And in today's rhetoric, you hear a lot of people, both in terms of so-called Islamophobes in America, as well as Muslims outside, who are speaking of this idea that Sharia should be the law of the land. Many people on the far right are claiming that Muslims are secretly coming here to take over and establish Sharia as the law of, as the, law of the land. When I get questioned about that, I tell them that, okay, if that's what our plan is, we're obviously not doing a good job, because you already know. But... But then there are Muslims also in other parts of the world, Muslim-majority countries, who are also seeking the same. 
But what is interesting is that at almost no point in Islamic history is Sharia the law of the land. First, this is also a very modern, uh, a modern practice in which we have coercion law with nation states. And so the caliphate movement, uh, which is akin to, for example, almost like a Muslim Zionism, focused on the establishment of an Islamic state, is only about 200 years old. It goes back to at least 1850, not that far. But prior to that, Islamic law was designed to allow or to help a Muslim be a full Muslim in a population where no one else is Muslim. Right? So it's not so much a state law or a civic law. It's probably, in our language, something closer to what we call ethics. It's not quite ethics either, because there is some internal or, or communal compulsion. Uh, but ethics is a better term than law. And that is part of the idea. How do you live as a stranger in a strange land and have a connection with the divine? That's Islamic law. When we get into the Sufi schools, Islamic spirituality, here the conversation is a little bit different. When I'm away from my home, I'm still in the company of the divine. So when we speak of the Sufis, think of them, for lack of a better term, as the schools of Islamic spirituality. Islamic law focuses on your actions, your body. Islamic spirituality focuses on your heart. How do I adjust my relationship with the divine if I'm away from my home? And so there are a few commonly cited passages in the Quran. One, you will never attain righteousness until you give up of what you love. So here we'd speak of your homeland. It may also mean distancing yourself from your family. That's part of the process of immigration. But the idea being that you are always in communication with the divine, whether everyone is of your belief or whether you yourself are the only person of belief. And thus, what is the core argument that you find across the various Sufi schools, and we can get into the differences a little bit later, is that the divine is putting the world in front of you and your challenge is to, is to figure out how to respond to what is put before you. This includes tests of suffering. This includes tests of ease. How do you pass the test of suffering when the divine puts suffering before you? You persevere with trust in the divine. How do you pass the test of ease when the divine puts you in ease? With gratitude to the divine. And then there are a few other tests. One is the test of obedience. How do you continue to obey? That's more addressed in the Sharia. You know, how do you make your prayers and so forth and so on? How do you do that? How do you obey? You obey. And the fourth is how do you answer difficult questions? This then is Islamic law addressing your external, Islamic spirituality addressing your internal. The third big field I want to address, and, and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up, is what we would call, for lack of a better term, the field of justice. Justice and Islamic law are two different things. Islamic law is focused more on stability. Islamic spirituality is focused more on change. Justice is more focused on equilibrium. And this now gets into, for our purposes, not the immigrant, but the resident who is receiving immigrants. This now gets into the, uh, the story of the resident who is receiving refugees. This again goes back to the story of the Prophet Muhammad. So the Prophet Muhammad, as you said, is in Mecca, and then he moves to, to Medina. By the time he reaches in Medina, about a third of the population has already become Muslim. And he assigns what we would call an institutionalized brotherhood and sisterhood. There are the people who are locals, the residents. He named them the helpers. 
And then you have the emigrants, which he called the emigrants, the Ansars and the Mohajirs. And he assigned for each of the emigrants one local resident with the responsibility of taking care of their needs. Okay. So you go with this person, you go with this person, you go with this person, you go with this person. Okay. Until every single emigrant has been taken care of. And the responsibility of the residents is you have the full responsibility of taking care of their entire livelihood. Finding them a place to live, finding them a way to earn, which here is mostly trade, and finding how to fulfill their social needs. And so what is the strategy here? The strategy here is cohesion. Okay. Now, <clears throat> what else is part of the challenge? Under the rule of Muslims, there were many, many refugees, especially at the time of Muhammad. And again, there's a whole backstory here in terms of persecution of religious populations. My obligation as a Muslim is to, number one, make sure that everyone in my environment, to my capacity, has a home. Okay. More accurately, healthy shelter and sustenance. This all goes back to one particular surah, one particular chapter in the Quran, which is interpreted for this. Uh, my obligation is to make sure everyone in my society has reasonable or healthy or fair trade and fair travel. Not fair trade in the common way we mean today, although not entirely different from that. The idea being that you get what you earn, you're not getting exploited. Okay. And you can see how this becomes primarily relevant for refugees. Because refugees are often the most easy to exploit, have the most difficulty in finding homes. My obligation also to the people in my environment is to make sure that people have security or the sense of security from fear. Think of heads of state promoting fear as a form of exploitation. If you're promoting fear in your environment, you're telling the people to be afraid. If you're not empowering them on how to deal with the fear, in this paradigm, what you find commentators saying very frequently is that they are literally exploiting the population. Because think, think about what you do when you're in fear. Okay. You may lose your mind in fear. And the fourth, so the first is shelter and sustenance, the second is trade and travel, the third is security for fear, and the fourth is protection of their religious observances. Okay. Meaning, think back to when I said that for much of Islamic history, especially in the first few centuries, they were minority populations. Uh, I'm not getting brownie points with the divine by, co uh, by coercing people to convert to Islam. Okay. Rather, I have the obligation to protect their religious observances. Now, if you put all four of those together, what is the strategy? making sure people have healthy shelter and sustenance, fair trade and travel, uh, security from fear, and protection of their religious observances. What does it all sum up as? Making it as easy as possible for people to turn to the divine. Okay. So that, in a nutshell, we spoke about the prophet, peace be upon him. We spoke a little bit about Islamic history, and in three particular fields, uh, Islamic law, the Sharia, Islamic purification, the Sufis, and then justice. And then hopefully this will give some material to think about uh, how to apply this to the present day. But otherwise, thank you for your time. And